You'll recall that Canto 23 ended with Virgil striding off in anger. He'd realised how much he'd been fooled by Malacoda, and he steps off with Dante following him, but feeling softer himself, feeling glad that Virgil now is beginning to recover, to see what's been going on. And Canto 24 begins seemingly in quite a different mood. Um, there's a lovely extended simile that Dante draws out here. He tells of a shepherd awakening on a spring morning, but momentarily forgetting that the, the seasons are changing. And so when he leaves his shepherd's hut, he sees hoarfrost on the ground, but thinks that it's snow, thinks that the land and therefore the food, the fodder for his sheep have been bound up and frozen solid, um, as happened in the winter. He goes back inside, full of anger, full of frustration, slaps his thighs, Dante says. But then a moment or two later, goes outside again and realises that actually it's the hoarfrost, it's hoarfrost because it's thinning, it's already disappearing. The sun is beginning to take it away. And in fact, the seasons are changing, the springtime is here. And so his heart fills up with joy. And then at that moment, Dante the poet tells us that Dante the pilgrim saw Virgil's face and realised that his anger had already lifted and now there was a sweetness to his countenance. And much like the shepherd who realises it's only hoarfrost, not winter snow, so too Dante's heart lifts and there's a lovely moment of tenderness and connection. But there's something going on inside this moment of connection and love, of course. And it's to notice, I think, that Virgil is changing. He's not stuck. Um, he's not fixed. He's not pinned down by the garment of his life, you might say. He's not like the hypocrites whom they just left behind. And I think that's one of these moments where, again, we see Virgil learning, changing himself. He's not actually in hell psychologically, although he's travelling through hell once more and travelling through hell now with Dante. I think it's an intimation of Virgil's future in this moment. Right now, he turns to Dante and starts to guide Dante out of um, the hypocrite's bolger. Um, remember that they had left them behind in the bottom of the chasm and are now finding their way up the bank. And he does it beautifully. Um, he um, looks at each rock in turn. He measures to see whether it can take Dante's weight. Remember, Dante's got weight in hell, unlike Virgil. And they start quite a long trek, actually, up the side of the bulger. Um, it's really powerfully emphasised. Um, Dante says that his lungs ached and it took him all his strength to keep going. And in fact, when they get to the top, um, and Dante um, rests uh, for a moment, Virgil tell, turns to him and says, um, it's not sloth that will win you um, fame and glory. Um, and I think that this um, emphasis on the work that Dante has got to put in to his descent um, is the kind of counterpart to Virgil's change. Um, that change takes effort, change takes patience, change, change um, is a bit like climbing a steep mountain. It's a metaphor that's even used. 
um, it's a long haul and just when you think you've reached one horizon another horizon open up, opens up before you. So it becomes quite a powerful metaphor for their descent. Although it's also noted um, in the, uh, by Dante the poet that their descent is made easier because it's also a descent into hell. So the slope out of the bulger is moderated by the fact that there's a general incline towards the well where they're headed. And this is just a little hint that even though it's hard work, if you can pay attention, you can see how divine grace, how energy from the outside, you might say, um, is there to assist you too. It's no road for those who wear the cloak, Dante remarks, remembering the hypocrites with their heavy cloaks. And he means it literally. Um, you wouldn't want to um, carry a heavy cloak up this slope. But it's meant metaphorically too. Um, that those who are bound down can't change, can't leave things behind, as the hypocrites haven't been able to. They won't be able to make their way forward and through um, to uh, find, well, new insights in the descent, but that's also the precursor to an ascent. Remember, there's always this play of the ascent and descent, and much more closely intertwined than can first meet the eye. And it reminds us as readers, you know, this long simile, then this discussion between Dante and Virgil as they climb out of the Bolger, these remarks about sloth won't win you fame and glory. Um, it's a reminder to us that we too are supposed to be journeying with them, uh, feeling these changes inside ourselves as we wrestle with what's seen, with the text, with what Dante is trying to communicate. Um, you know, the move suddenly from the darkness of the hypocrites to the lightness of the shepherds on the spring morning, I think is supposed to help us see um, and discern inside how these, these changes of mood um, are kind of happening all the time. And if we can discern them, if we can move toward what feels good, what feels light, and what intimates that the sun is rising, then that is going to help us through the descent um, to becoming an ascent as well. It's quite striking how the rhetoric that Virgil uses to kind of chivy Dante along, to encourage him to keep at it, um, has a kind of mood, um, and it's very much the mood of the classical hero. You know, he's told to kind of gird up his virtues, to pursue with courage and strength, um, to kind of keep at it. Um, uh, it's quite a sort of manly, masculine image that he draws, um, that he draws on. And Dante, though, is... It's quite different. Remember Dante's seen Virgil's sweet face. Um, you get a sense that what's actually really keeping Dante going um, through this climb, um, keeping him at it, stop him too getting stuck in the fixity of hell, um, keeping working at his change and reflecting on what's going on as much as putting in all the effort, that what's really firing Dante's um, uh, struggle um, in this section of the Inferno um, is in fact his love for Virgil. Um, it's love that's more deeply stirring inside him and that's keeping him going. And I suspect that part of what we're supposed to see, a bit like recognising it's hoarfrost, not snow, is what is really inspiring Dante now. Um, it's the return of his, well, formerly teacher's insight now intermingled with um, his friend's love and affection. He's um, got a quiet joy that Virgil has recovered from the horrible encounter with the demons of, uh, um, the, of, of um, the previous um, Bolger. And that joy is giving him a newfound energy now as they 
keep on, keep at their descent. Finally, it feels, although it's only halfway through the canto, they get to the next bridge, the one going over now, the seventh bulger, and it says that this is a hard climb too, it's got lots of jagged rocks on it, and they make it to the top, where their climb is arrested because they hear a voice coming up from the depths of the bulger below that they can't see into it, it's too dark. And what's also very strange is that the voice is inarticulate. Um, it can't really pronounce what it wants to say. And uh, Dante is very intrigued by this and turns to Virgil and says, you know, I want to um, get a closer look, which, of course, Virgil is now really pleased about because this shows that Dante's will and desire is engaged in the right way. They're working together. So they cross over the bridge and come to the edge of the bulger on the lower side. And now they can see into the depths below, into the chasm. And it's one of the most shocking sights, actually, I think, in the whole of the Inferno, because it's so unexpected, it's so dramatic. What they see is a confusion. I mean, it's a confusion of human souls and serpents running in a kind of mayhem. Um, it's said um, that they look like a sort of plague um, that has um, driven itself through a city and ruined it. Um, it's said that there's a kind of a sense of venom running through um, the chasm, much like poison would run through the streets. Poison not of literally the infection, but also of the terror um, and all that that might invoke. And um, then they see um, something really, really very dramatic. They see one soul in particular um, being chased by a serpent. It's said that he's struck between the shoulder blades and in an instant crumbles into a pile of ash before then the next instant the ash reforming and the soul reappearing once again. It immediately makes you think, you know, what earth's going on here? Um, after the slow um, liturgical plodding of the hypocrites, we've suddenly now got nothing but a kind of perverse and twisted energy um, with human souls being chased, um, uh, being struck, collapsing, reforming, um, you know, what on earth is going on here? Well, Dante, of course, encourages us to change our mood, change our mind by thinking about this juxtaposition of the soul who's been struck, collapses into a pile of ash. Um, because he then says it look, reminds him a bit like the phoenix who is supposed to have been re reborn anew out of the ash every 500 years, the phoenix who doesn't eat uh, vegetation but eats myrrh and frankincense, it says. And um, I think that this contrast is supposed to make us think about, well, first of all, the phoenix, because it would have been known that the phoenix was a very common metaphor for Christ rising again out of the ash of death. Um, Christ, too, who tasted myrrh in the suffering um, of his death. And this then maybe takes us back to thinking how Dante has been suffering um, in his labouring um, through the first part of the canto. Um, he's willing to undergo that. He desires to change, too, um, which um, is a sort of positive association with the phoenix. And so it makes you think that maybe this soul um, was unwilling to change. Um, and that's why now he's been struck um, and forced 
um, into this ashen state, but only to be reconstituted exactly the same as he was before. Nothing's changed, in fact. It's a, a repetition compulsion, as Freud would have put it. Um, all this energy being spent just to say exactly the same. And then we learn a little bit more about this soul, because Dante speaks to him. And it turns out that he's a chap called Varni Fucci. And he tells his story um, that he stole from the sacristy um, in Pisa. And moreover, he then stole away in order to evade justice and someone else got blamed. So we're now getting the sin of um, this Bolger named, it's thievery. But because we've had all this preparation, we're already thinking, you know, what is thievery in its deepest, most existential, soul-threatening sense? And we're getting intimations of that. That the problem that the thief has, the thief has um, is not just that he takes stuff, um, but that he does so to sort of short circuit, um, to, to try and take a shortcut around what he might own, what she might possess. Um, rather than going doing the hard work of changing themselves um, so that they, as it were, become a new person from the inside out. Um, they take gold, they take clothes, whatever it is that's stolen, um, and just put it on the surface of their body um, to change their appearance, but they haven't changed from the inside. So there's a deep kind of meditation and reflection now going on um, in this canto, as well as the shock and horror of seeing these twisted and contorted uh, metamorphoses. Between, on the one hand, um, the metamorphosis, which is a rebirth, um, kindled by, by courage, the old classical virtues, but also by love and by heart-warming connection, which we'd seen between Virgil and Dante in the first part of the canto. And now, horribly contrasted with Fucci's theft, stealing away, trying to invade justice, but also more profoundly unable to receive the warmth of love and the grace that's um, around and about him. Um, you know, again, remember that uh, Virgil, sorry, Dante the poet, had, had noted that um, they were aided by the slope of Malabolgia as well as when they were going through their struggle. And the thief is not able to accept the aid um, that's round and about and because they just steal. The reference to stealing and the inner life of those who steal um, chimes too with the psychotherapeutic insight that maybe one of the things that Dante is characterising here in this lower section of hell um, is this deeply entrenched narcissism, the kind of state of mind that doesn't know that others exist, that's too preoccupied with itself, um, that's obsessed with its own control, its own omnipotence, and so doesn't change. Because one of the things that that kind of narcissism can do um, is steal ideas, steal insights, steal from the world around. And it's stealing because they don't recognise that actually it's been given by the world around, maybe gifted by others, offered as an insight. They take it and then just assume that it's their own. Um, that, of course, is what the thief does. Um, they take and then make it assume that it's their own without recognising that others might be involved, others might be hurt, others might be offering something like love and affection. That is something of the deep state of mind that we're beginning to encounter now um, as we um, meet our first thief.
and something of the deep stuckness of his mind, of his soul state, is revealed now because when Dante calls out to him and asks why he's here in this Bolgia, um, he at first um, speaks very honestly. He says quite frankly what he did and suggests that he knows why it's wrong. Um, he then shows shame. He bows his head and says to Dante, I wish that you hadn't stolen up on me in this lower Bolgia and see me in this state of mind. And you think, oh my goodness, maybe this chap um, has got some hope inside him, has got some capacity to change. But then he moves into a prophecy. And it's a prophecy very much against Dante. Um, it's to do with the future of Florence, to do with the civil war, um, the fighting between the Ghibellines and the Guelphs. And it's a prophecy against Dante's side, against the white Guelphs. And Fucci now spits it out. Um, and he ends up with uh, a, just an out-and-out out kind of nasty remark when he says, and this is the prophecy that you too are going to suffer. Um, again, this is another aspect um, of this horrible state of mind, um, that when you see someone who has something you don't have, um, in this case, I guess, Fucci is seeing that Virgil's alive, that he's moving through hell, he's not stuck in one particular place. Well, you want to destroy what the other person even has and that you can't have. It's envy in its deepest sense. And so it seems like he uses this strange capacity to see the future that souls in, the, in hell have, um, to turn it against Dante um, and to spit poison um, at Dante, quite as vile as the poison we'd seen him struck with when the serpent hit him in the back and he dissolved in this pile of ash before being reconstituted exactly the same. He has not changed, and it's with this nastiness that the canto abruptly ends.